Good morning. morning. All right, Acts chapter 4, let's dive in. I'm sitting here singing these songs about the resurrected king resurrecting us and singing endless praise. And I can't help but think about, you know, we, we tend to lose sight of what happens on Sundays. And I'm just thinking of how this, this has happened for thousands of years, what's happening right now. And God has placed us intentionally in this moment in church history to be the church, to be those who he has resurrected to proclaim his resurrection and to be resurrected ourselves. So I'm feeling a gravity as I walk in this morning that we must redeem this moment in church history and be the church. Amen, church? If that doesn't get your blood flowing, you need to check the temperature of your heart. Acts chapter 4. If you're with me, let's stand. Let's read. We're taking a break from our Thessalonian series as Pastor Darren's off away, getting rest with his family. And so what we're going to do is we're going to return to a text that I go to a text that I've returned to often because what it does is it gives us a snippet picture of the greatness of the local church. No better passage in all of Scripture than this passage gives us a picture of the greatness of the local church. Let's start chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, as we, your people, those who you have chosen, those who you have saved, come together to hear from you and to grow into your image. We ask this morning that your spirit will work in our hearts, that we would be renewed in our spirits, that sin, we would be resurrected from sin more and more this morning, and that we would grow into the image of who you are. And that God, you would... Do something miraculously spiritual in us this morning where we grow in a desire and a passion for the local church to give of ourselves to her and to its people for the exaltation of your son and the glory of your name. Spirit, if you do not work in our inner beings this morning, then this is just a a rah-rah speech. A get them and go. God, that's not what we want. We want something that's going to change us. We want something that's going to make us fall in love with you and to desire you more. We pray all of this. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So when we come to Acts chapter 4, we are face to face with the greatness of the church. People talk about how great the local church can be. You've had experiences of great local church in your life. You know how great the local church can be. And what we're looking at today is the greatest greatness of the local church. And the first line says it all. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. This is the greatness of the church. That every single person who believed was of one heart. Every single person who believed was of one soul. It wasn't this community group over here was really tight. This group over here was knit together. Uh, This group... This ministry loved each other and were super tight. No, it was that every single person in the church to an individual, every single person who believed, every single person who was saved, every single person who was a follower of Christ was of one heart and of one soul. They were laser focused, laser focused on God together. Laser focused on where they were going. Laser focused on what they wanted, on what they were willing to give up for one another, of how they loved each other, how they served. They were unified so deeply that the text says that they were of one heart And one soul. 
I would think it'd be pretty obvious. This is my, this is my prayer for us this morning. Is that we would see ourselves in this moment of church history as this local congregation, First Baptist Church of Ocala, and the Spirit would do something miraculous within us and would unite us of one heart and one soul together. And so the question I think we have to ask is how? How did that come about? How were they so united in one heart and one soul? And I, th I think we see two things. The first thing that we see is that they were devoted to the Lord. Together, they were devoted to the Lord. So we see this. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, uh, Luke is telling us a story about how the apostles are sharing the gospel out in the city. But as they're sharing the gospel in the city, this creates problems. So much problem that they get arrested. And, and the chief priest comes to them and says, hey, we're going to let you go, but you are no longer allowed to speak about Jesus. And so look at the first thing they do after they're released and commanded not to speak about Jesus in chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So the first thing that they do is exactly the first thing that you would do or I would do. You'd call all of your friends and tell them what happened. Listen to this. I was doing this. He did this to me. He said this. Now, with most of our friend groups, what would happen? Oh, we'd, we'd mobilize. We'd weaponize. We're ready to go. We're going to get our picket line in order. I'm going to start a Facebook group. If we went back and told that story that we were arrested for preaching the gospel in the city of Ocala and were commanded by government officials to no longer speak about Christ in this city, a reaction would be something along the lines of, I can't believe this happened to you. They can't do that. This is America. How dare they talk to you like that? I'm so sorry that you were treated like that. I'm appalled. Where has our country gone? But that's not what they did. That's not how they responded, church. What did they do? They didn't rise in anger. They didn't pick it. They didn't go to their mediums of communication like Facebook and start blasting government officials. No, the first thing that they did was they actually praised God. And they asked for more opportunities to proclaim the gospel. They immediately went to him in prayer and began to praise the name of God that they had opportunity to, praise, to, to proclaim the gospel. And they said, God, this isn't about us. This isn't about what we're doing. This is about you and what you want to do. And so we'll go to the ends of the earth for you. If we go thrown in prison, we'll be thrown in prison. But give us more opportunities to proclaim. So amazingly, in the midst of all of this, we see them seeking after God. They don't seek after what they want. They don't seek after their comforts. We see them literally go back to Scripture and hold on to the promises of God together. And what we begin to see 
is that this devotion to God, this pursuit of God in unity leads to incredible things. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The place they gathered was shaken. It was moved. It was no longer the way it was before. The Holy Spirit filled them in a spectacular way. And they did not shrink back in, well, let's be wise. Let's see what we should do. Let's take this angle. Let's take this strategy. They continued forward together, all together, in boldness, proclaiming the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. This devotion to the Lord, this filling of the Spirit, led them to continue to do incredible things. And one of the things that's highlighted here is that they began to sacrifice for one another in unprecedented ways. Right? This is what we see flow out of a devotion to the Lord. A devotion to God leads to a sacrificing for other people. The love that they had for God led directly to a love for His church. And that's the second thing that we see. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one had any of the things. No one said that they had any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. No one said. They looked at their assets. They looked at their resources. They looked at their finances. Anything that they could leverage, that they could work with and use, they looked at it and they said, that doesn't just belong to me. That doesn't just belong to me. That belongs to us. No one no one, this literally happened. This was the focus of the local church in the ancient church was that no one regarded anything as their own. But they were always ready to give to one another. Now, it's important for us to notice something here that this was not a situation in which people were forced to give. What we will see with Ananias and Sapphira in just a minute is that, that while they owned it, it was theirs. They could do whatever they wanted with it. People weren't forced into giving things to the church. Rather, we see a model where Christians are devoted to God and to each other to the point that they are compelled by the Spirit towards one another to the point where they are willing to sacrifice and surrender anything for those around them. Unless we miss this, church, this is still the model today. 
This is still the model that God uses today, that as we are devoted to God, we grow in our willingness to sacrifice for the local church and its mission. So we we view our resources, the things that God has blessed us with, as part of all of ours, so we leverage it for the good of others and for the mission of the local church. So to help us see this devotion... Luke gives us an example of what this looks like. And we see that uh, through Barnabas in verse 36 and 37. He says, Thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We see this supreme example of what it meant to be a local church member in the person of Barnabas who has this piece of land and he sells it and brings the proceeds to the church. And here's the wild thing. There's not one catch. We aren't told of one reason why he wanted to sell and give it outside of the Spirit compelling him to sacrifice for the good of others. Church, does this sound like anyone to you? It's echoes of Jesus, is it not? He gave up what he possessed for the good of others. For the purpose of what God wanted to do in the world. This type of sacrifice was commonplace in the early church. It was the fuel that propelled the explosion of the church. Believers so united with each other that they would consider everything in their life worth giving up for the good of one another. It wasn't just land or property. It was everything. It was how they approached their time. It was how they approached their homes. How they viewed their families. How they considered their money. It was all of their possessions. They were ready to give any of it up If the church had need, this was the greatness of the church. They were of one heart, one soul, completely devoted to God as individuals, which led to a complete devotion to one another, which saw them unified of one heart and one soul. And church, what has made the church beautiful for thousands of years, what has made the church beautiful has not changed. It's what we see in Acts chapter 4. It is devotion to God. It is uh, devotion to one another. But Luke comes and he tells, he gives us one more example. But this example is a warning. So we see the greatness of the church in their devotion to God. We see the devotion of the church in their devotion to each other. And we see Barnabas as this supreme positive example. But then he tells us a warning. And we see that in Ananias and Sapphira in verse 1 through 11. We see this couple who they also, like Barnabas, have a piece of property. And they also sell their property. They bring the proceeds to the church. They lay the money at the feet of the apostles. All of this is exactly the same story as Barnabas, except what they communicated. 
Ananias and Sapphira sold their land, brought the money of the church, and they told the church that they gave everything. This is all of the proceeds. This is everything. And by the power of God, the apostle Peter knows that they are lying. He questions them, even giving Sapphira a chance to change her story. But they do not. And whether it was because of shock or whether it was because of a miracle in that moment, both of them and their episodes are struck dead in an instant. Two things are crucial here that I think we should notice. First is we need to take notice of what fills their heart. What fills their heart. Look at verse 3. Luke says, why has Satan filled your heart? This is the opposite of Barnabas and the other members of the local church who were told to be filled with the Spirit. But, but this is the clear difference between Ananias and Sapphira and the rest of the church who were devoted to God, chasing after God, doing the will of God. Ananias and Sapphira are said to have been led by something else. They weren't filled with the Spirit. They were filled by Satan. Now, it's important for us to consider what that means because we could walk into the danger of, every, of Satan made me do this, right? Uh, that if Satan fills my heart, he is the one who's, um, he's the one who's making me do this, right? Demons are the one. I, I did this because demons made me do it. And, and that's not what's happening here. So what does it mean? What happens in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira is that they had rogue desires that led this to them, led them to this. Think of the local church. Their desires were for who? God. Their desires were for God and then for one another. Ananias and Sapphira had some kind of desires that entered into their heart that were not focused on God. They crept in and led them to focus on something God was not focused on. Consider this. The rest of the church desires for God and devoted to him, which led them to be devoted to one another. And Ananias and Sapphira's rogue desires led them to be focused on themselves. And Luke says that those desires were satanic. Now, we don't know exactly what Ananias and Sapphira's desires were, whether they were comfort, whether they were seeking pleasure or happiness, whether it was an investment and that's why they held back the money, whether it was fame among the local church that they wanted to, uh, they wanted to be, they saw Barnabas do it and they wanted to do it too and be held in that light. We don't know that it was praise, but what we do know is that whatever they were devoted to in their life, whatever rogue desires had swept in, they were contrary to God. They were contrary to full devotion to God. And it led them to the point where they were being influenced by Satan more than they were being influenced by God. And there's a lesson here, church. 
There's a lesson in what we see in Ananias and Sapphira is that whatever God, whenever God wants to do something, whenever God has a plan for something, Satan has a counter plan. Look in your life. Consider your life. Consider the church. Read the book of Revelation. Whenever God is doing something, Satan is working against it. But it's rarely the exact opposite of God to where uh, we say uh, that is so clearly satanic. No, think about this. Isaiah says that Satan wants to be like God. Paul says that Satan comes as an angel of light. Church, rarely is Satan's plan the opposite of God. Rather, it is often the mirror image of what God wants to do, while the heart of it is completely different. He will often take us, Satan will often lead us right to the point of obedience, but ultimately lead us to the place of complete disobedience. So Satan fills their heart to do what? That's the second thing that we see. It isn't to fly in the face of the apostles. It isn't to steal from the account of the church. No, he fills their heart, it says, to test the spirit. This is what Peter says to Sapphira in verse 9. How is it that you agreed together to test the spirit? You will be familiar with this type of testing. Uh, if you've had children or you've been around young children, we've been, I've been amazed uh, with baby D in our life, just at 12, 13 months old, how, how a little rebellious spirit is already there, right? It was an instance where it happens every day, but I was vacuuming and he goes to pull the vacuum cord out of the wall. And I say, no. And he looks at me stares at me, starts to pull, and I say no, and he lets it go. And then I turn, continue vacuuming, and then the vacuum stops. <laughs> Why? Because he was testing, what's the point at which I say no? What's the point at which this is no longer obedience Obviously, he's not thinking in these categories. But what is the point at which this is disobedience? Right? I did this as a teenager. Mom says curfew's 11 o'clock. That first time, I show up at 11.00. Next time, let's see what the reaction is at 11.05. I got no reaction. Let's try 11.15. And what happens is you're testing these boundaries to see what you can get away with and it still be considered obedience. And Peter comes to Sapphira and he says, why are you testing the Spirit? In the same way a child looks to see what they can get away with. Ananias and Sapphira tested the spirit to see how much they had to give to the local church, but that they could keep back for themselves and still be praised on the level that Barnabas was praised on. How much do we have to give 
for it to be obedient. Here's the great, great sin of Ananias and Sapphira that we must avoid, church. Here's why they tested the Lord. Because they desired the reputation of devotion more than they were truly devoted. They wanted people to think of them more devoted than they actually were. They wanted to know how much they needed to give in order to be seen like Barnabas, but they were never really willing to sacrifice like Barnabas. This is the counter plan that Satan is running. God leads us to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the community. Satan leads us to sacrifice the community for the good of ourselves. And this is the great warning. That what threatens the local church, what threatens us, and I believe church, this is, this is critical for us. It's why it's so daggum hot in here right now. It's why I see 50 fans going. It's why Satan doesn't want you to hear this. Because the great warning, the great threat to the church is not a political party. It's not a local municipality. It's not something even external to the church. The greatest threat to the greatness of the church are rogue desires in the, end, in the hearts of individuals within the church. It is our hearts allowing desires inside of us that lead us away from God and away from each other. And that may not be in proximity. What threatens the church is sin that makes the individual think of themselves before they think of the whole. To the point where they're not truly devoted to God. They aren't truly devoted to one another. Ananias and Sapphira would have been at every event the church ever had. They were functioning in the life of the church. Giving to the church. Ananias and Sapphira, in the middle of chapter 4, when they went and prayed for boldness, Ananias and Sapphira would have been right in the middle of that. Every Sunday morning service, every Wednesday night learning environment, everything, Ananias and Sapphira would have been there. But a rogue desire enters into their heart. It takes their eyes off of God and onto themselves, and it compromises the church. So at the end of the story, we see that this is not a story about giving. This is not a story about greed or withholding funds. This is a story about hypocrisy and pride and trying to perpetrate a perception of ourselves amongst each other that is not reality. Oh, that we would just know that we are all hypocrites. 
And that we would live truthful, honest lives devoted to the Lord, devoted to one another. Now, I want to make a note on here. Husbands. To husbands and wives. This one uh, for the men. I think Luke is doing something here that he wants us to take note of. Uh, Ephesians tells us in chapter uh, 5 that our role as husbands is the sanctification of our families. The focus of our lives as husbands is the holiness of our household. That as far as it depends on us, we are to protect our household from sin. We are to protect them in every way from these rogue desires as much as it depends on you, husband, father. Ananias didn't do that. Luke tells us that Ananias kept back for himself and his wife knew. But the blame here is placed on Ananias. Ananias wasn't protecting Sapphira from sin. He was setting the pace in sin in his home. The greatest example that I can think of of this is in Genesis chapter 3. When Moses tells the story of the fall in the garden when Eve, Eve ate of the fruit, this is how it reads. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. You ever notice that? When Moses tells the story of the fall, he doesn't leave out the fact that Adam was standing right next to Eve when she sinned. Adam didn't protect her from the serpent. He didn't keep Eve from sin. He allowed her, watched her, and allowed her to walk right into it. Men, the calling on our lives, if you are a husband, if you are a father, if you have aspirations to be a husband and father, the calling on your life is to lead your family, is to lead those around you from sin into holiness. And if we're honest, part of the problem in our world today is that Christian men are not doing this. But that we are setting the pace with rogue desires, setting the example of those desires. But wives, you aren't off the hook completely. Notice what Luke says. Ananias kept back for himself with his wife's knowledge. Luke doesn't excuse Sapphira's sin just because her husband wasn't leading the way that he was supposed to. She was even given a chance to tell the truth apart from her husband's leading, but she still was judged by the deception of her actions. Wives, moms, your responsibility of holiness is your calling regardless of your husband's leading. 
It is your calling regardless of anyone else's leading around you. Your calling is still holiness. Church, this is the great threat to not just the church, but it's the great threat to our church is that we as Christians allow desires into our heart for things other than God. And it leads us to give our lives in sacrifice to anything around us. And the world makes that pathway shiny. Entertainment, sports fandom, experiences, vacations, finances, retirement, our kids' college diploma, setting up a good life for our kids. None of those things are bad. Having proceeds from the sale of a land is not bad. But when these desires go rogue in our heart. They lead us away from a devotion to God which has an immediate effect upon us as the local church. If we are going to live out the greatness of the church and be devoted to the Lord and devoted to one another, the most important ingredient is holiness. Robert Murray McShane, a young pastor who died around 30 years old in the middle centuries, had a saying when he talked about his pastoral ministry. He said, the greatest thing that my people need is my personal holiness. If you've been around me for any extended period of time, you know that I think that statement must rule every area of our life. The greatest thing that my wife needs is my personal holiness. The greatest thing that baby D needs is my personal holiness. The greatest thing that you need out of me as one of your pastors is my personal holiness. The greatest thing that you need of each other is your own personal holiness. Otherwise, Sin will creep in. And it will set up shop in our hearts and slow down what God wants to do in this world. Church, what they needed is what we needed. And you see it in the final verses where it talks about fear falling upon the church. That's their problem is that they didn't fear God. They didn't look at God as supremely holy in every area of their life. And so that comes to us in our moment in church history to ask the question, do we truly, really fear God in every area of our lives? How you handle your finances, do you fear God? How you lead your household, do you fear God? Is there something to fear? In the way that you make plans about your life, 
Do you fear God? Are you devoted to the Lord in every area of your life without hesitation? One of the things that we learn about this passage is that there is nothing that you can hide from God. He knows. If you hold back devotion, He knows. If your heart is compartmentalized to the point where portions of you are all in on Jesus and portions of you are not, He knows. If there are portions of things that you desire above Him, He knows. But God is calling us to a full, radical devotion to Him. You know, the beauty of the gospel, church, is that yes, we are fully known by God. He knows the crevices of your heart better than you do. He sees the rogue desires coming a mile away. Your desire to not go into the depths of your heart, he sees that. You may be here and you may not be a Christian. And you may be be thinking, I wish I had some of the desire that Ananias and Sapphira had. Because of the life that I live. Here's the thing. He sees that too. He sees everything about your life. But the beauty of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, he not only sees everything about you, he loves you fully. Inside of Christ, you can be fully known and fully loved. And the way that that happens is the same way that it happened for the early church. Is that you trust in the finished work of the resurrected Jesus Christ who overcame sin and death for us because we could not. And as we place that faith and trust in him, we live our lives devoted to him fully, relentlessly. Not one area of our life where it is not ruled and regulated by God himself. And when that happens, not only are you saved, but you are united to the people of God. And then you live out the greatness of the church. Fully devoted to God. Fully devoted to one another. Used by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray God, how many times could you have struck us dead for the rogue desires of our heart? How many times have we held back How many times as men and fathers have we not led the way that we should rather than keeping from sin, we set the pace in sin? How many times as wives and mothers have we followed the pathway to sin because others set it around us? God, you, 
you could have struck us dead at any moment. But you didn't. And we know that great grace is upon us for that. And Father, your salvation that you have brought to us, the fact that you have resurrected us, the love with which you have for us, we give you praise. God, we ask, we want to live out the greatness of the church. We want to be boldly devoted to you. We want to be relentlessly devoted to one another. Father, we don't want to seek our own fame, the affirmation of those around us. God, keep us from those things. Keep our hearts from the praise of the people around us. Keep our hearts from being lured by the things of this world. And Father, as it feels cold in here now, I know Satan does not want us to hear this. Because this is what Satan's trying to fill our heart with. So God, I, I pray for myself. I pray for my, brother and si- my brothers and sisters here that make up First Baptist Church of Ocala. And God, I ask that you would protect our hearts from that so that we would be fully devoted to you and fully devoted to one another. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.